So on Thursday nights, uh, what we do is we open the Bible together uh, and we read it and we hear from it. And this semester, we're going to be in the book of Exodus. Maybe I speak really hyperbolically all the time. See there, I said it. Um, But I really do think Exodus may be my favorite book of the Bible. I really uh, I really do love that. And I really hope that's infectious. If you keep coming back uh, week after week as we explore this rich book. Uh, And I think tonight as we read chapter one uh, and consider it, I think you'll see what is I hope you'll see what's in store for us. So if you would open your Bibles or look in your hand out there, let's read here. Exodus chapter one. These are the names of of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to, to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter... She shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, dealt dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand for forever. This is God's word for us tonight. So call me a nerd, call me what you will. Uh, But I really like the Avengers movies. Uh, maybe a little too much. Can't wait for Captain Marvel in March and then the final uh, Avengers movie uh, in May. Uh, or whenever it's coming out. I think it's coming out in May. Um, and again, you, there's many reasons for that. I like superheroes. I used to play with action figures when I was a kid. I like professional wrestling. Um, I mean, there's weird things about me. I just like it. But if I had to pinpoint one thing to tell you why I love the Avengers movie specifically, uh, where all the superheroes come together... It's the story. Now, I'm not talking about the plot of the movie itself, but I'm talking about you think about this universe that they've created in all these movies. You've got all these superheroes 
that have their own movies, have their own trilogies even. They're rock stars on their own. But in the Avengers movies, they all come together and they're all in the same movie all at once. And I turned into a 10-year-old boy again and I go, it's great, right? Anybody else want to watch movies with me? It's fun. But it's this unifying story that binds all the other stories together. And kind of gives them this foundational meaning and this foundational purpose. So much so that you can even go back and watch the, the older movies before them and see them in a whole new light. See them in a whole new perspective. Get them on a deeper level. Well, here's the thing about the book of Exodus and the event, the historical event of the Exodus. For the people of Israel, for all of history, the Exodus was that story. The Exodus was that story that brought all the other stories together. It was that story that gave the foundation to the understanding of the meaning of their lives, to meaning to the meaning of living life in this world, to the meaning of who their God was and who they were in relation to this God. It was the story that defined their very existence. And for generations after this story, they would come back to it and they would process their present circumstances through the grid of what God had done through the Exodus. You go, you read forward in the Bible, I can point to many allusions in all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. You see the Bible writers going back to Exodus to make sense of what God is doing in the world and what God's doing in history. And so what I hope you'll begin to see even tonight is that this is a story, but it was it was also a story about the big story because it's a story of salvation. It's about the rescue that made them God's people. So it's a salvation-defining story. After this story, the people of Israel as a people were never the same. And so I want to see things, three things about this. As we look to this tonight, what I hope you'll begin to see is that this is our story as well. So three things here uh, is that every story has a past, every story has a beginning, and every story has an author, okay? So let's think about this. Every story has a past. And you can see this. This is brought up at the outset as we begin reading the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus doesn't happen on an island. Uh, A while back, many years ago, five, six years ago, uh, one of the earlier ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries. I don't think I've used this in a sermon yet. I've used it in Bible study. But anyway, it's one of my favorite illustrations. But it was called The Ghosts of Ole Miss. Boo, hiss. Anyway, um, it was about the best Ole Miss football team. That you've never heard of. And that's not the start of a bad joke. But it was a team that went undefeated in 1962. It was the best team that Ole Miss ever had in 1962. But it's the best team you've never heard of. Because you know what also happened in the fall of 1962. President John F. Kennedy had to mobilize and and, and order the National Guard to occupy the campus. As riots broke out when James Meredith was admitted, was forcibly admitted to the school uh, as the first African-American student. And the guy who narrates this 30 for 30, a guy named Wright Thompson, he lives in Oxford now. He's from Mississippi. Uh, He recounts he recounts in his investigation, trying to catch up on all the details surrounding that night of the riots. Uh, He recalls he's in the Lyceum on the circle at Ole Miss and he's going through some of the original documents of that night. And he's going through a notepad that a highway patrolman had used that night to jot down names of people that he had detained. And as he's flipping through this notepad, he sees his uncle's 
name. And he says what caught him off guard about that is that no one in his family had ever talked about this night, let alone that someone in their family had been involved. And this is what he said. It's one of the most poignant lines of anything I've ever heard. He says this. He says, what is the cost of knowing your past? And what is the cost of not? What is the cost? And and now look, if you're from Mississippi or from the South, you feel the power of that question. What is the cost of knowing your past? And what is the cost of not? And I think in other words, it's fair to say there is a cost to knowing your past. But do you understand the cost of not? What would that look like? Every story has a past and there's a cost of knowing and there's a cost of not. And Exodus immediately, uh, the author of Exodus immediately draws our attention to this because the first word in the original, in the Hebrew of Exodus is the word and. When do you use and? When something comes before it. And so what is the book of Exodus telling us comes before it? Well, Thousands of years later, we know the book of Genesis, the story of Genesis that were immediately drawn back. And actually, those first verses are actually quotes, uh, uh, quotes from Genesis 46, verse eight. And even more than that, you get this continual language of multiplying uh, and working, which that takes us back to the creation account. The two things that God uh, gave man to do when he created him before the fall. And so you think about this for the people, the first people that would have gotten this revelation from God through Moses, most likely uh, a second generation uh, wilderness wandering Israelite people. So a generation or so removed from the exit itself. They've been wandering in the wilderness. They're headed towards the promised land. And God begins to tell them their story that they might know it, that they might remember. And what he is making abundantly clear to them is that their story All the events of it from that point, uh, from from what they can remember to that point, he's trying to show them that their story is firmly rooted in the past. Now, why would that be significant? Why would it be so significant to know, understand that the story was rooted in the past? Well, maybe you thought some of these questions yourself, because where do they find themselves? Where do the people of Israel at this moment in history find themselves? Well, their forefather Joseph has died. Their forefather Joseph, who got them safe passage into Egypt and harbor during famine, he's now dead and gone. And the favor that they had enjoyed because of him has now been forgotten and is gone. And not only that, but now they're made into a ruthlessly oppressed slave people. And their time as a ruthlessly oppressed enslaved people is some 400 years And so maybe you even thought this question to yourself as as we read this or as you thought about this story. How would you process that? If you were descended from this great story, this great family that God had worked in their lives through the book of Genesis. And now 400 years have passed and you have not heard from your God. And this is what has happened to you. What sense do you make of it? How do you process that? How would you understand your place in the world? Look, any philosophy, any religion, we kind of know like life's big questions are, are universal to just to exist. It's kind of the, the who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we headed? We kind of all have that ingrained in us, whether you're a Christian or not. We kind of all have some understanding that is that is those are life's big questions and we want to find answers to them. Uh, I used to be a campus minister at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. Uh, and my first fall there, they rebooted their football team for the first time since 1941. 
And they made a t-shirt and it was amazing. And this is what it said. Mercer football, undefeated since 1941. (laughs) Great, great. And you think about that question, right? It answers all all those questions. Who are we? Where are we come from? What are we doing here? What are we doing here? Um, Undefeated since 1941. The author of Exodus is telling the people of God, however you view your circumstances, the full story stretches back to the beginning of time itself and even before it. And there's a definitive connection with who came before and who they were. They were the chosen people of God. That was not to be forgotten. And look, this is huge for us because look, our culture, you know, nostalgia is kind of a cool thing. We like wearing old stuff and playing, you know, playing or listening to old stuff. Uh, but our culture, for the most part, has kind of seemingly lost its connection to the past because we want... Either we want better or we think we're better than the past. And so we try, we're always constantly kind of pushing. But everything, everything about college, everything about work in this culture that we, that we live in is all about the here and now. What, what, what is it going to get for me in the here uh, and the now? Seizing the day, doing whatever you want. You know, and some of you, you came to college. And the past was just something you wanted to be like, great. Now I can, you know, maybe, maybe you came, you just wanted to be a new you. Nothing wrong with that. This is kind of the time of the year uh, for the new you, right? Uh, as we're all in the gym, all together, just staring in the mirror. And then in two weeks, none of us will be there. It'd be great. Um, some of you came to college kind of hoping to leave your past behind. Some of you, your past is a burden to kind of just like feeling free and feeling like you can do whatever you want. Um, others of you have some pretty terrible and traumatic pasts. And no one would blame you for never bringing it up ever again. What do you do with that? Regardless of the reason, the fact remains that all of us, your story has a past. Explains how and where you fit in the here and now. And no matter what you think, no matter how much you may even want to erase it, your past is a reality. And that is what we are urged to see here at the outset of Exodus But there's comfort for the people of God here. And this is it. God is more than capable of dealing with your past. He's more than capable of dealing with your past. Christians are firmly rooted in the past. This is our story too. Do you know James, the brother of Jesus? He's the one that wrote the letter to James in the New Testament. He begins his letter. I don't know if you knew this. He begins this letter, his letter in the New Testament. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. He wasn't writing just to Jews. He was writing to Christians. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. This is our story too. Every story has a past. And if you're a Christian, what you'll hopefully begin to see in this story is that your past, because of who it's owned by, it's noble, your present is secure, and your future is certain. That's how this letter, how this book is beginning. Now, how do we get there? How do we see that uh, for ourselves? And how would they have seen that for themselves? Well, the second thing here is every story has a beginning. Where does this story begin? It begins in bondage. The story begins in bondage. The people of God, this chosen family is oppressed and enslaved. That's how this story begins. Does it make light of it? There's a strong and dark reality to what the people of Israel had to endure during these some 400 years. And the question sticks out. How could God allow this to happen to his people? If everything he said and did in Genesis was true, 
Why is this happening? Well, first, remember, this became a defining story for the people of Israel because it's a story of salvation. If, and if this is a defining story, because it's a story of salvation, it's because it's a story of setting people free. And so the premise that this story begins with is that if we want to be set free, what we have to see is our bondage. That we are in bondage. That we, every person in this world, is in bondage. And that bondage is described very vividly, actually. You look at verses 13 uh, through 14. Let me read you this um, with the... There's one word that in English gets translated into different words, but it's the same word in Hebrew. Let me reread it. Read along with me. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel slave as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard slavery in mortar and brick and in all kinds of slavery in the field. And in all their slavery, they ruthlessly made them slave as slaves. Here's a question. Do you think the author is trying to get something across to us? And here's the assertion that the story begins with. To serve anything or anyone other than God in this life, in this world, is bondage. That's the point that it's getting across to us. And that's what it was for the Israelites. Not nec- it wasn't by their choice, but it was bondage and it could not be escaped. And one way you actually see this, and this is one of the things I love, the beauty of this being a story that we read, is have you ever thought about the story of Exodus in a nutshell, if you know it, is that God comes to a people that are living their lives being told what to do. And he leads them out of that place to a mountain. And you know what he does there? He tells them what to do. He gives them the Ten Commandments. Another way you see this is that the story begins with the people of God building, uh, building cities for an earthly king. And you know how it ends? It ends with the people of God building a tent for their God. To live for anything, whatever you live for, that is your master. To serve anything or anyone other than God is bondage. If you're not God's, you are someone's. You see, this rubs against us because we have this notion of freedom that that freedom means to be free of any masters. But there's no such thing as having no master. There's no such thing. The Bible tells us we are slaves to whatever we live for. And again, there's why there's kind of these, uh, these images, and, and we'll even see it in, in Exodus 2 next week, uh, that kind of point us back to creation because we're being reminded that we were made for something. Before sin entered this world, we were made for something that was to live for the one that made us. Uh, St. Augustine put it like this in his, in his confessions, O Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We were made to live for something. And we all have that something. Whatever it is that you have to have to be happy is that something. Whatever it is that you are allowing to tell you who you are. Where are you finding your identity? Where are you finding your worth? That's your master. What is it that tells you what you will and will not do during the week? What tells you what you will and will not do at a party? What tells you what you will and will not do with a boyfriend or girlfriend? What is getting to answer those questions for you? It's your master. What is telling you how you will spend your time if you spend any of it on anything? 
It is your master. We're all living for something. And whatever we live for, it's our master. But here's the thing that's good news about this story. Is that it's only the beginning of the story. It's only the beginning of the story. Um, the word exodus literally means departure. And so the exodus is a story of departure. It's a story of leaving something. It's an epic journey from slavery to salvation. Meaning, when we as the readers and we longing maybe to find this God in this world in our lives, when we begin this story, we know that it's going somewhere. And when we, as people in this world made by this God and maybe seeking this God, understand that we're living into this story, we begin to see in our own stories that is confusing or dark even as they may be. It's going somewhere. I don't know if you like previews. I'm one of those nerds that gets to the movies at least 15 minutes early because I don't want to miss the previews. Um, If you're one of those people that shows up 15 minutes late, don't ever go to a movie with me. I'll hate you. Um, But I love previews. The best previews are the ones that don't show you much, right? Why? Because it draws you in just enough to know that there's more. And it makes you want that more. And it makes you pay outrageous prices for popcorn and stuff to see it. Anyway. This story, the feeling that something is about to happen is palpable here. You feel it. And it's just because it's a story that gives every captive the hope of freedom. Because what this story proclaims and what it will proclaim to us, if you come back and you stick with the story with us week after week, what you're going to see is a story that proclaims that there is a God who saves That there is a God who delivers his people from bondage. And he is not just able. He is determined. Did you catch that? He's not just able to save. He's not just willing to save. He's determined to do it. And that's what he's going to do. Look, the Bible, again, as you're maybe thinking about your own stories, whether you want to or not, the Bible never pretends to try and give us pat answers. The Bible never pretends to come at us and say, well, that should just make sense to you. It never does that. But what it does give us is it gives us a framework. It gives us a content, a context within which we can begin to make sense of our bondage and what God is determined to do to break the chains this is where the people of Israel were, and we're going to see it very vividly next week. They don't, by the end of chapter 2, the people of Israel don't know what to do, and the only thing that they can do is cry out. There's not even a mention of a specific prayer. It just says that they cried out because of the ruthlessness of the oppression that they were living under. If we're going to begin to make sense of the days of darkness, we need to do it in the way that God prescribes. And what I hope you will begin to see in this book is that the way that he gives us to start making sense is through a story. He's going to tell us a story. So I'm going to close tonight with this. How do I know this is true for me? How could I even know, even begin to know that this would be true for me? Well, It's in the fact that every story finally here has an author. This story has a past. This chapter of this story has a beginning. And what the opening verses, and I think you see this pretty vividly, make clear to us is that these people are where they are because of divine command. God sent them to Egypt. 
They're there because of divine command. They're shielded. Though it's dark times for them, they are shielded in divine promises. And they are longing for divine intervention. And so what the author of this story is drawing our eyes to immediately is that if we're going to see anything in this story, it's that the main point is the God of Israel. The God, as it says there, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. We'll we'll see the God who promised Jacob's grandfather Abraham in Genesis 15. You go back and read it for yourself. This is Abraham. Hundreds of years earlier, he tells Abraham, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted. Guess how long? 400 years. We don't get an explanation of it, but God promised it. This is the God who told Jacob in Genesis 46, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you into a great nation there. What has happened? One of the greatest superpowers in the history of earth fears this enslaved people. The God who also told his people that all would be well in Genesis 46 when he said, I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back. Now it's been 400 years since those words were spoken, but they are true. And so what we're being told is that God is the author of this story. But again, the question remains, why would he do this? Why is this the way that he would go about it? Why let his people go through this? Why let any of us go through anything that we've ever gone through? Paul says something interesting. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, he says this. He says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You catch what God was saying there? God wants the whole world for all of time to know That he saves his people from bondage. That's what he wants. What God wants us to know is that to know this God is to be set free. That God's cosmic plan, his plan that he put in place before time itself began, was to set captives free. And so to know this God and to live for this God is to know what it is to be set free. Now again, I don't know about you, but there's something about December and then the first days of January every year, right? Where you feel this, don't you? That lingering feeling that something's holding you back, that something is clouded over you and you just want to be free. But how are you going to get there? I don't know if you ever saw The Truman Show. It was a great movie. Jim Carrey. Um, I think it was made in like 1996. So old. Anyway, it's a great movie. You should see it. Jim Carrey plays uh, a guy named Truman Burbank. The thing about Truman Burbank is he lives a very white upper class or middle upper class uh, life. Normal life. He's got a sweet little wife. A uh, house with a picket fence. But he begins to doubt his place in the world. And he begins to look around and wonder. And so he sets out on a journey to find the meaning of his life and to find the meaning of his world. And what's so captivating about this movie is that what Truman finds 
is that his entire life, from his birth until that moment, has been a reality television show that the whole world has been watching. And so he begins to see that every single circumstance of his daily life had been mapped out for him like a script, even down to who he married. And watched by the entire world. But the unsettling part of the movie, for him and for the, the viewer, is that there's one man at the top. It's this big dome. It's like this big virtual reality dome. And there's, a, there's the director's room up at the top of it. And it's the man at the top, the director. He's the voice in the sky. He pulls all the strings. And he's very personally and very intimately involved with Truman because he's been involved with him ever since he was a baby. But ultimately, it's not for Truman's good or glory. It's for the TV show's glory. That's why he's intimately and personally involved. And so for Truman, you see what freedom for Truman was was to escape that man's grasp, to break free, to get out and into the world. This is the question I want to leave with you tonight. Wherever you find yourself in this new year, hopefully it's positive. Hopefully it's exhilarating. Hopefully you had an amazing Christmas and you're so glad to be back here. But maybe you couldn't wait to get back here. Or maybe you didn't even go home because you didn't want to go back to what was there. Or maybe you didn't want to come back here because you didn't want to come back to what was here. Wherever you are on this spectrum, right? I want to ask this question. What if behind it all, behind your story, behind even history itself, was a God that not only seeks his own glory because he does... But he does so as he seeks your everlasting good. And he will move heaven and earth until he accomplishes it. In Romans 6, Paul says of us who are Christians that we used to be slaves to sin. But now in Christ, we've been set free. Why would Paul choose language like that? This is what I want you to see because Exodus is the story of deliverance from bondage through the work of a Savior. That's the story we're being set up for. And so to know this story, what I encourage you to come back for is to know this story better is to know the Christian story. And so I leave you with that question. Do you know the story? Are you at least curious to want to come back? And look a little deeper. It's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we long to hear the story tonight. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the millionth time. And that we hope we, you would give us ears to hear it. Eyes to see it. Hearts to believe and cling to it. That it would be life itself to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.